It's Thursday, December 13th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Michael Cohen, the president's former attorney, has been sentenced to three years in prison after implicating Trump in a hush money scandal. Standing before the court, an emotional Cohen said that his weakness was blind loyalty to Donald Trump, and he felt that he had to cover up his dirty deeds. Laura Namias, reporter for Politico, was in the courtroom and breaks down what happened. Next, we're joined by David McCabe, technology reporter for Axios, to discuss the testimony of Google CEO Sundar Pichai before the House Judiciary Committee. Conservatives on the committee got into heated exchanges with Pichai over what they perceive as political bias baked into Google's platforms. At the end of it all, Pichai acknowledged that there will be an increased scrutiny on big tech and that regulation is on its way. Finally, just another way that local governments are trying to squeeze more money out of you. State regulators in California want to tax your text. There's a vote scheduled for next month about charging a fee for text messages on mobile phones to help support programs that make phone service accessible to the poor. John Woolfolk, reporter for the Bay Area News Group, joins us to talk about taxing your texts. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. After Mr. Mueller makes his findings and issues his report, you will see more of Michael Cohen telling the truth about Donald Trump. He will someday be appearing as a John Dean II before a congressional committee and will tell all the truth about what he knows about Donald Trump. Joining us now is Laura Namias, author of the New York Playbook for Politico. We found out that Michael Cohen, the president's former personal attorney, has been sentenced to three years in prison related to uh, all sorts of stuff from the Mueller investigation and also prosecutors in New York. He doesn't have to report till March 6th, which is uh, gives him quite a bit of time to relax for the holidays. It's funny, uh, the judge, William H. Pauley, said that Mr. Cohen had committed a veritable smorgasbord of crimes involving right. deception and motivated by personal greed and ambition. You were there in the courtroom when all this happened. How did it go? different proceeding from the other ones that we've seen Michael Cohen at in the Southern District. Both Cohen and his family were there more than an hour early. They knew that this was a very serious proceeding. And actually, there was sort of a palpable sense of relief from Michael Cohen. He said that he actually felt very free on the day of his sentencing. He said that he had made the decision, he had the freedom to choose to cooperate and to come clean about this stuff that he did, and that, in a sense, freed him. In a way, it was more of a calm atmosphere than it has been at other moments in the saga of his courtroom drama. Well, I mean, he's been on edge for so long now since the FBI raided his offices and just constant blowback from the public, from the president. Everything had been thrust into the public spotlight. This is probably some type of closure for him. He yeah. went up and he delivered a statement. People said he got very emotional. I think he was crying, breaking down almost a little bit. And he yeah. did say he pinned a lot of this on the president. What did he say? He told the judge that today was the day that he was getting his freedom back and that he had been living in quote, a personal and mental incarceration ever since the day that I accepted the offer to work for a real estate mogul whose business acumen I deeply admired. Wow. So that's President Trump. He said that his major weakness in life was a blind loyalty to Donald Trump because, quote, time and time again, 
I felt it as my duty to cover up his dirty deeds. So really pinning it all on the president and seemed very genuinely regretful about his relationship with the president, which at this point is landing him in jail for three years, and he is going to have to forfeit a significant amount of money and pay almost $1.4 million to the IRS. Yeah, he said that his blind loyalty to this man led him to choose a path of darkness over light. And I know this is a prepared mm-hmm. statement and all, but I mean, there's a, a lot of drama just in those words. And you go back to, you know, when they met Michael Cohen and, and the president, as he said, he did respect his business acumen. Michael Cohen was one of the first people that was doing that exploratory part of it to see if there would be enough support for Donald Trump to run for president. I mean, he was there for a lot of stuff. And I think his attorney, Lenny Davis, said that he would be willing to also testify before Congress. I can't imagine there not being some type of book in the works, things like that. So, I mean, there's going to be a lot of stuff coming out about their relationship in the time to come still. And he and his lawyer repeatedly emphasized during the court proceedings that Michael Cohen, although he doesn't have a formal cooperation agreement with the Southern District U.S. Attorney's Office, that he is willing to continue to give any information that he can to federal prosecutors, either in the Southern District or the special counsel's office going forward. So he's already sat with them for hours and hours, giving them what they've only described as reliable and and credible information, sort of tantalizingly. And he says that he's willing to offer more. So this is not the last that we're going to hear of Michael Cohen. He can still be brought to testify. He can still cooperate, even if he's in prison. The bars are only physical. They're not metaphysical. Right. He pled guilty to a bunch of stuff, tax evasion, financial fraud. The main one were the campaign finance violations, paying off of two women so that news of their affair wouldn't affect the election for President Trump. Prosecutors mm-hmm. also released a non-prosecution agreement with the National Enquirer publisher, basically saying that it was all done in cooperation, consultation, and concert with the Trump campaign to make mm-hmm. sure that it didn't affect them. The president, for his part, denied it. Then he acknowledged it. Then he said, well, it wasn't campaign transactions. It was a personal transaction, a private transaction. This is the big implication here. This is what involves the president. So how does that go moving forward? The news that came out after the sentencing of that non-prosecution agreement with AMI is actually really significant news because prior to that, you sort of had Donald Trump's words versus Michael Cohen's on what exactly those transactions were. This is corroborative. It's two groups of people swearing under penalty of perjury that this was related to the election. This is not a personal transaction. And that could potentially be an issue of criminal liability for President Trump. So that that could be very serious for him, separate and apart from all of the Russia investigation business. For his part, the president continues to call Michael Cohen a liar, but things are heating up and we'll see what comes up next. Laura Namias, author of the New York Playbook for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. If you Google the word idiot under images, a picture of Donald Trump comes up. I just did that. How would that happen? How does search work so that that would occur? Joining us now is David McCabe, technology reporter for Axios. We wanted to follow up with you on Google CEO Sundar Pichai talking to 
the House about a range of issues. Just first off, was there any big exchanges, anything? Uh, there was a lot of other news going on, so I, I felt like this might have gotten buried in the in the news cycle. But was there any big exchanges that happened? As expected, the issue of alleged anti-conservative bias on Google's products dominated a lot of the conversation, led to a lot of the most heated exchanges. The one that sticks out in my mind is a Republican lawmaker told Senator Pichai, perception is reality. And that stuck with me because it gets us sort of the heart of this problem, which is that as much as Google says this doesn't happen, the bias doesn't exist, and here's how we vet our search results, there are people who are convinced that it is going on. And I don't think that Sundar Pichai really changed their minds. But in terms of a single headline, one didn't really come out of the hearing besides that a lot of congressional Republicans spent their time on these disputed charges of political bias. And as a result, that's a real win for Google, that there was not one obvious headline about a really substantive long-term policy issue for them based on something that Mr. Chai said. Right. It wasn't like when Mark Zuckerberg went up there and, I mean, there was multiple headlines about multiple topics. One of the ones that stood out in, in my head, you know, from reading over things that were going on, was when Representative Lowe's Lofgren of California asked Sundar Pichai, can you explain to me how the searches work? And was like, why, if I Google idiot it in the image section, Donald Trump comes up there. <laughs> it's just like so silly to bring up that example. But I mean, that's kind of the way the line of questions were going. Yeah. And I mean, Congresswoman Lofgren is a long time ally of Silicon Valley. I think questions like that end up giving Google an opportunity to give its version of events more so than they really press it on, on some of these issues. And we saw that from some Democrats. So some Democrats did press pretty hard on issues like privacy or competition instead of spending their time on this bias question. Let's talk about privacy, because I know that is a huge concern for a lot of consumers. And the unfortunate thing is that it's mostly a concern after the fact, after somebody's been hacked or something like that. So what did they say about privacy and keeping people's data safe? Sundar Pichai says that Google does take steps to protect user privacy, that it doesn't just collect data for data's sake. He says that they're very aware, and this came up in an interview that my colleagues and I had with them later in the day, that they're very aware that this is a changing consumer expectation. At the same time, it's clear that lawmakers agree with the many people who do find some of the data collection to be on its face kind of creepy. And that's particularly acute when it comes to location data. We saw a New York Times story just recently that talked about the way that app developers, so not necessarily Google or Facebook, but app developers, Developers record location data, and we saw that come up on multiple occasions. A lot of the services and ad targeting and everything that's kind of like at the very basis of everything is knowing where you are and where you're going. Exactly. I mean, think about how much about your life you could learn from where you've been and where you're going and the patterns that that. that Reveal. On China, because I know when we talked about this briefly, it seemed like people were going to be pressing him a lot on that, bringing a form of censored Google to the Chinese market. And it seemed like he said there's no plans to really do anything about that. He said there are right now no plans to enter the Chinese search market with a censored offering. The key there is right now, yeah. sort of a rhetorical trick that allows you to say at this very moment in time, we don't have these plans. It doesn't preclude plans in the future. And in fact, he, he avoided answering a question that was, will you commit? to not doing this. While your CEO, I think what we've seen him say is, well, listen, we are working on this. At some point, it was maybe as much as 100 people working on this. But these experiments could lead us in other directions to other businesses in China. And as he said, right now, they claim they don't have a plan to, <laughs> to shape this offering in China. That's the easy way out right there. He testified for about three hours. And then after that, he spoke to you guys there at Axios and admitted he knows that the big scrutiny on all of these technology companies is here to stay. I mean, it, it's not going to go away anymore. It's going to be in, increasing, really, 
because of how much we use and how much we rely on these things. And we've said this multiple times that regulations and lawmakers are always behind the ball on when new things pop up. So what did he have to say to you guys? He told us he thinks the scrutiny is here to stay, at least for the near term. He said it's hard to predict, you know, how this stuff cycles in and out. But for the near term, it is here to stay. Those were his words. He said it's also a good thing that this kind of scrutiny is important. But of course, that is not a huge surprise that he would say that, that he would sort of embrace this moment rather than just get into a defensive crouch, because that can lead to some pretty hard places for a company. You know, on a broader sense, it was clear that he is aware that that the company that he runs now is in a very different position than Google was when it was founded, when it was sort of a, an up-and-coming startup that didn't have these questions about power and dominance and potential abuses of power and dominance. From your understanding, does he seem like one that is going to be open to regulations from lawmakers? There's still this disconnect where it seems like a lot of lawmakers don't understand how all these processes work. Is he going to be open to regulation from them? Google, like a lot of other big technology companies, ISPs, has said that they want national privacy regulation. What they're attempting to do here is first circumvent state regulation, preempt state regulation, because after California passed a privacy law, there's a chance that you might have 50 different state privacy laws. They don't want to deal with that, and potentially that the states could go further than California. So that's part of why they're calling for this. It's also important to remember that they are making an active choice to try and shape a law rather than just saying, no, we won't take one and risk that it will happen anyway. David McCabe, technology reporter for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. This has been backed by some civil rights groups and consumer groups that have said, well, we need to come up with a replacement mechanism to create that funding. If if telephone, traditional telephone isn't going to pay for it, we need to be assessing a a charge on what people are using, which is text messaging. Joining us now is John Woolfolk, reporter for the Bay Area News Group. So we're going to be talking about this interesting story coming out of California. State regulators are saying that they want to tax you on your text messages, and it would help fund programs that make phone service accessible to the poor. You know, you read the headlines and you think right away, oh my God, what is going on? But in places where things like this pass in California, other people get ideas and then the things start spreading. So tell us what state regulators are planning to do. Why do they want to tax our text messages? answer is that telecommunications landscape has changed so much over the last century or so. And back in in the 1930s, when telephone service was becoming so prevalent, the federal government decided that in order to make it equitable, it had become such a a key means of communication that to make it affordable to everyone, they wanted to have these programs that would fund extension and basically subsidize telephone service in rural areas where it was not financially profitable for the phone company to extend service and also to poor folks that couldn't afford to have the phone installed and all that. And since the 1980s and 90s, that's with the growth of mobile phones and computers and particularly in the 21st century where we have all these other things, text messaging and message apps and things like that. Traditional landline telephone service has been losing ground 
around to this, these other forms of communication, particularly texting, and they have pointed to declining revenues from the traditional telephone service that supports these, what they call public purpose programs. It's what you see as the universal service charge at the bottom of your bill. So that revenue has been going down. At the same time, California, the budget for those programs has ballooned, almost doubled the last 10 years. It's uh, close to a billion dollars now. So they were making the case, uh, and this, this has been backed by some civil rights groups and consumer groups that have said, well, we need to come up with a replacement mechanism to create that funding. If, if telephone, traditional telephone isn't going to pay for it, we need to be assessing a, a charge on what people are using, which is text messaging. So this is going to be scheduled for a vote next month by the California Public Utilities Commission. What form would this tax take? Because they're not going to be texting individual text messages. I mean, that would <laughs> that would be no. you know impossible to do almost. No, it, it would be slapped on at the bottom. It would basically be part of that universal service charge that you see. Uh, the way it's currently done, and this is all really wonky state regulatory stuff, but it's currently assessed as a percentage of the revenues from traditional phone service and some mobile service. And so this would add the revenues from the wireless companies that provide texting service to that. And so essentially, it would be spreading it over a larger revenue base. In theory, the percentage that would be assessed on traditional phone service would go down slightly, and then they'd raise it equal amount on this other texting to basically hit their targeted budget number. And the money that they could be making off of this, I mean, some of the calculated charges could be $44.5 million a year that consumers would be charged. And one of the crazy things under this proposal is that they could possibly retroactively apply this for the past five years, which would mean it's about $220 million for consumers. They had had a plan where they were assessing this charge uh, over the last five years in some other areas, and so they were making the case that it could be applied retroactively, and that was over the last five years because of that. How would they take into account all these messaging apps? Because there's tons of those. WhatsApp, I mean, even on your Apple, if you have an iPhone, your iMessages, you don't get charged for any of that if you're texting other iPhones. So how would they account to that, and uh, what is the wireless industry saying about all of it? There's concern is that they worry that their service, the texting service, will lose ground to internet-based messaging apps. And they've been gaining a lot of ground lately. You got it with Facebook, you got it with Apple, iMessage, Skype. I mean, there's just a whole bunch of new technologies. And so they're saying that, and this is one of the frustrations with the regulatory world versus the technology world, is regulators are always trying to catch up to the technology and they're always several steps behind. And so what their fear is, is that they'll impose this regulation on uh, SMS and MMS text messages on your mobile phone, and people are just going to shift over to WhatsApp or something else. It's easy to do. And then... Exactly. And so uh, their argument is that it's unfair to them. It puts them at a disadvantage because by the fact that they're offering traditional voice phone, they are subject to this regulation that Internet companies are not. Well, it'll be interesting to follow and see how that vote turns out. Uh, it just seems like they <laughs> finding more and more creative ways to squeeze a little extra money out of you. John Wolfolk, reporter for the Bay Area News Group. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome.
All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.